This is Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 40, and these are the words that he pens. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Two main points on your outline this morning would encourage you to take notes. Number one is this. Be sure that you know the biblical Jesus. Be sure that you know the biblical Jesus. Jesus is again teaching in the temple, and it is again the scribes who garner his attention. Jesus taught in the temple there in verse 35, and he said, or he addressed the scribes, saying, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, we learned over the last couple of weeks about these individual groups that came to Jesus, but the scribes, just by way of refresher, were the teachers of Scripture in Jesus' day. They were the theologians. They were the learned ones. They were the bright ones. They were the ones who knew, who studied, who communicated, and who applied the law of God to the people of God. That's who the scribes were. Matter of fact, scribes literally means the lawyers. They were experts in the law of God. They were supposed to be experts in the law of God. When the scribes spoke, people listened. They had incredible influence among the people. Uh, their, their position and their influence uh, meant that when they spoke, when they thought, what they spoke and what they taught and thought before long, found its way into the arena of public conversation and public opinion. And so that's a, that's a huge, huge responsibility. I think about that for myself. When I stand here on Sunday mornings and I declare, thus says the Lord, praying that God would, would help me to rightly divide his word, would, would help me to be faithful in the application of his word, the things that I say, the things that other teachers in our congregation, small group uh, leaders and Sunday school teachers and other pastors say, over time that works its way into, and rightly so, into the public opinion of the congregation. In other words, you learn from us. We all learn from each other. We're not high and exalted and mighty and nose up and we're the ones. That's, that's Rome. That's, that's popish. That's not what we're saying. But when it comes to the, to, the, uh, to the scribes here, what they taught about God, what they taught about the law, sooner or later found its way into public discourse and found its way into public opinion. And so with that in mind, look at verse 35 here and consider Jesus' question to the scribes. He asks, how can the scribes say... That Christ is the son of David. Now, 
the implication here is this. How can the scribes say that Christ is simply the son of David? That's what Jesus is getting at here. You see, the Davidic sonship of the Messiah was a standard Jewish belief. Most people believe that the Messiah was going to be the son or going to be the descendant of David. That was standard. It was understood. But the Jewish understanding of the Messiah's relationship to David was only that of another victorious Jewish king from David's dynasty. That's where it stopped. Our Messiah is going to be a descendant of David... He is going to come in and conquer, but he is only going to be a descendant of David. You see, the the, the law teachers, the scribes here, their view was correct. What they said was correct. The scribes say that Christ is the son of David. That is a true statement. That is a correct statement. The problem with it is that it is woefully incomplete. It's woefully incomplete. You see, the scriptural view of the Messiah held a far more uh, massive implication than the scribes' narrow nationalistic hopes. In other words, the Messiah is just going to come in, and he's just going to take care of our needs, and he's going to set up a kingdom for us, and now we will rule. It's these nationalistic hopes. The scribes rightly taught that the Messiah... The great deliverer who God promised through the prophets of old to send to his people would be a descendant of Israel's greatest king, David. It's a true statement, but at the same time, it's an untrue statement. You see, the scribes were right in what they said. They were wrong, on the other hand, in what they did not say. Let me illustrate it for you. If you were asked on a test this morning... Who is George Washington? Who is George Washington? And you answered, George Washington had silver curly hair, dressed very stately, and was a military general. You'd be right. But at the same time, you probably would not receive credit for that answer. Does it make sense? Although what you said was correct, you left out the most important detail, namely that George Washington was the first president of the United States of America. It's exactly what's taking place in our text here. The scribes had no problem saying that the Messiah is the son of David. But they did not teach because they did not believe that the Messiah was also the son of God. That he wasn't just going to be a human conquering king, but that he was a divine conquering king. Not just the son of an earthly ruler, but the son of a heavenly divine creator. When the scribes imagined their Messiah, their imagination went immediately to a mere mortal monarch who was mounted on his steed, who surveyed with laser precision the realms that he had conquered for Israel, all the while distributing the wealth of the conquered nations among the religious elite, notably the scribes here. And of that type of Messiah, 
the scribes would cry out, we will have this type of man to rule over us. We will have this type of Messiah. We will welcome this type of Messiah. They had no problem with the Messiah like that. But when confronted with passages that taught that the Messiah would be more than this, they did not want more than this. They wanted a human Christ, not a divine king. They wanted a man who worked for them, not a king who ruled over them. And so what did they do? Well, they imitated their forefathers. Those who in the days of Samuel rejected God as their king and asked for a human ruler instead in his place. You see, the scribes here in our text this morning are the very tenants of the vineyard that we studied back in chapter 12 who rejected the owner of the vineyard and who would rather kill his son than submit to him. You see, the scribes' fatal flaw was that the Messiah they expected was a Messiah of their own making. They had created a a ruling, reigning Messiah king, but they had designed him themselves. He was created, made in their own image. They had no problem with the Messiah they had construed. But a Messiah that would rule their hearts, they had no room for or desire for. And so, friends, this morning, I I just want to ask you, is it possible that you worship a Jesus of your own making? Is it possible that you worship a Jesus of your own making? There are no shortage of ways that people view Jesus. Matter of fact, the French Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire once said, God created man in his own image, and then man returned the favor. Regrettably, this kind of idolatrous thinking is common, not only amongst agnostics like Voltaire, but also among professing believers who neglect the clear teaching of Scripture. You see, left to our own fallen imaginations... We tend to perceive the infinite God as being just like us and existing exclusively for us. When just left to our own imaginations, we will create a Jesus of our own making. And so here here are a handful of ways, and this is is literally the scratch and sniff version, okay? This is the tip of the iceberg. There, There are a myriad of other ways that people wrongly think about Jesus, All of these and a myriad of others are all a Jesus of our own making. How about this one? How about retail Jesus? Is it possible that you've bought into that? Retail Jesus. I mean, the way you view Jesus is just like the way that you think about products on the shelf at Walmart. You walk through And you pick and choose those items that you want. You fill your cart with those items that you want. And if we're really honest, because most of us are pretty frugal, we typically pick and choose those items based on their what? Their cost. And so you just transpose that over to your Bible. And you say, well, those things that I like, I'll put those in my cart. I have no problem with with those products. But those things that sound like, seem like, or feel like they cost something of me, we'll leave those on the shelf. Not really interested in those because my Jesus is a retail Jesus. I think maybe potentially at a subtle level, 
we all weave into this thinking at times. Jesus does not exist just to give you what you want. The husband of your dreams, the wife of your dreams, the job of your dreams. You just go living the way you want. What about, what about the 401k, Jesus? Have you created a retirement plan, Jesus? I mean, you just pay your dues, right? I mean, you faithfully tithe, you read your Bible, you go to church, you do everything you are, quote, supposed to do, keeping it all together on the outside, looking prim and proper. And as long uh, as you do those things, then your retirement plan, Jesus, will reward you at the end of the day, and you'll go to heaven. You earned it, right? And you put your time in, you put your dues in, you've earned it. The true Jesus says that our righteousness is filthy rags. If we're going to make it to heaven, friends, it will not be on our own record. It will not be on our own merit, but by his merit and his record. How about this? How about Santa Claus Jesus? This is more common than I think we think it is. We wouldn't necessarily, our culture wouldn't necessarily put these labels on it, but these are the expectations that they import onto Jesus. Some of us have created a Jesus that in many respects is just like Santa Claus. I mean, for many children, uh, Santa Claus looms larger than life. He's, he's thought of as being all-knowing, all-giving, all-loving, all-wise. He lives at the North Pole, surrounded by all of his little helpers. He keeps a list. He checks it twice. He knows who's, who knows who's been naughty and nice. And once a year, he boards his sleigh, and he visits every single house, freely bestowing good gifts from above and making everyone happy in the process. But this jolly fellow makes no demands on anyone's life. He knows what you want, and he travels from house to house to bestow his treasures, only to reappear the following year with another rewarding visit. Some people think about Jesus as little more than a celestial Santa Claus. He exists to give you what you want and to make you happy, all in exchange for a little good behavior now and then. How about this? How about co-pilot Jesus? Co-pilot Jesus. Uh, many of you have probably seen this Jesus advertised on bumper stickers, right? Jesus is my co-pilot. If you've ever flown with the airlines, you've probably seen the flight crew as you walked into the aircraft. As you board the aircraft, they're often busy in the cockpit preparing the plane for departure. In the left seat, the pilot. In the right seat, the first officer or the co-pilot. And the co-pilot keeps an observant eye on the instrument panel. Actually, let me say this. Uh, for any pilots that are here, this is the perception of the co-pilot. The co-pilot does much more than this. This is the common perception of the co-pilot. He just keeps an observant eye on the instrument panel. He informs the passengers at times uh, where there may be a little bit of turbulent air that everything's going to be okay. He kind of reassures them. You see, while the pilot bears the full responsibility for the flight, the co-pilot is there just to take the controls when necessary. He's always at the controls, but he's never totally in control. Many people view Jesus just like their divine co-pilot. He's able to drive, but only at your discretion. 
He's reduced to a secondary supportive role. He's there in a time of need, but in the interim, he doesn't, not, he doesn't do a whole lot. He's not much needed. Sure, he checks the instruments. He, he, he comforts you when there's, when there's a little bit of turbulence in life. Most of the time, he's just on standby. Co-pilot Jesus, have, have you bought into that? How about this? How about fix-it Jesus? Or repairman Jesus? For some of us, Jesus is just reduced to a benevolent jack-of-all-trades. He can do a little bit of everything when I need him. These people see Jesus' goodness primarily in a problem-solving capacity. He's just like that 24-hour repairman that's at your beck and call. He'll be at your house and he can fix whatever is broken in your life. But what about when everything seems to be fine in life? What, what about those times where everything seems to be running like a well-oiled machine? Can I tell you who you don't need? You don't need the repairman. You got it all under control. There's no need for a repairman when it seems as if nothing's broken. For these individuals, when the turbulence of life strikes, and it's not a matter of if, it's just when, you see their whole disposition change. They become very spiritual in the blink of an eye. Because I need my repairman, Jesus, to step in and fix what is broken. How about this one? This one's common. Wants me to be happy, Jesus. He just wants me to be happy. This Jesus never steps on your toes. He'll never tell you that you're wrong. He'll never hold you accountable. He lives to put a smile on your face. He looks like you. He's made in your image. He goes to the places you go. He speaks like you speak. He thinks like you think. He wears what you wear. He just wants you to be happy. He'll let you stay exactly where you are. Your sin, eh, not that big of a deal. This Jesus will never contradict you. And ultimately, he just lives to fulfill you. Just to satisfy you. I was reading of an English poet this week, W.H. Auden. Lived in the 1930s. And if you read about Auden, some say that he came to Christ from uh, a previous life of atheism. But as you read about Auden, he's got some really interesting views. So whether or not he was genuinely converted or not, the Lord, the Lord knows that, as he knows about all of us. But, but he wrote these words, and I thought this was particularly interesting. Just track with me. I wish I had it on the screen so you could see it. I'll, I'll try to progress slowly here. He says, if a man who is in love is asked, what gives his beloved such unique value for him over all the other persons of the world? He can only answer, she or he is the fulfillment of all my dreams. What separates this one person from all the rest? This person fulfills all of my dreams. If the one questioning has undergone a similar experience, the, the subjectivity of this answer causes no offense because the lover makes no claim that others should feel the same. Here's what I want you to get. On the other hand, if a man who professes himself a Christian is asked why he believes Jesus to be the Christ, his position is much more difficult because 
He cannot believe this without meaning that all who do not believe it are otherwise in error. Yet at the same time, he can give a no more objective answer than this. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because he fulfills none of my dreams. He is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I were able to make him in my own image. That, friends, is a true statement. He is the opposite of what he would be if I were able to create him in my own image. And he does not exist just to fulfill all my dreams. He exists for himself. And he calls, yet he demands that I follow him. Jesus just wants me to be happy, Jesus. Lastly, how about this? How about the anything goes, Jesus? This Jesus doesn't want anybody to feel judged. Whatever you do, whatever you feel is right, that's good for you. You just do that. He doesn't even really care if you subscribe to Christianity or not. As long as you believe in some sort of higher power, some sort of deity, as long as you don't do too many bad things, if you subscribe to this Jesus, then you are perfectly within your rights to whip out your Matthew 7-1 card at any point in time and you tell anybody who says anything contrary, you can't judge me because neither does my God. Right? That's the anything goes Jesus. And so friends, I, I just want to ask, ha have you bought into any of these? Even in subtle ways. Have you bought into the anything goes Jesus? The Jesus just wants me to be happy Jesus. The, the repairman Jesus. The co-pilot Jesus. The Santa Claus Jesus. The 401k retirement plan Jesus. Or the retail Jesus. I just pick and choose what I want. Or do you know the Jesus of the Bible? Who says if anyone would come after me. He must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The Jesus of the Bible absolutely makes demands upon our life. And rightly so. For he is worthy. He is worthy. Friends, all this is just idolatry. You know, we, we don't, as we see in the Old Testament, typically uh, go and... and uh, erect Asherah trees in our front or backyard and bow down to Baal and, and carve images. But we create oftentimes a Jesus after our own image. We buy into poor humanistic thinking and theology instead of going to our Bible to inform us of who Jesus is and what he demands of me. It's idolatry all the same, just in a different form. shared this quote some years ago, speaking about the gospel here. Listen, the gospel of Christ has been replaced. We see that, right, in, in our culture. People don't want the gospel. The gospel's too narrow. The gospel's too exclusive. The gospel tells me I can't do this. Yes, the gospel steps on your toes. The gospel deals with your sin. The gospel brings you face to face with the God of the universe. That's what the gospel does. But the gospel of Christ has been replaced in our culture. And its power has been removed from the churches around the globe. Where Jesus called his people to abandon this world, to love God, and to love one another, we now declare that one must simply pray a prayer or join a church. That's the gospel of the day. Just pray a prayer and join a church. Just do spiritual things. Wear the Christian t-shirt. Develop some Christian jargon. Use the right vocabulary. 
That's the gospel of our culture. That's the gospel of our day. This author goes on and says, where Jesus' message demanded the entirety of one's life, today's gospel demands nothing. Unfortunately, where Jesus' gospel had the power to save us from sin and death, the gospel preached by many churches today is only a candy-coated trip to hell. And so, friends, I again ask you, do you know the biblical Jesus? Are you worshiping a Jesus that you've created in your own image? Are you worshiping a Jesus of your own making? Point number two there on your outline is this. Be sure that you are worshiping this true biblical Jesus, because if you are not, you are worshiping yourself. The only other alternative to worshiping the biblical Jesus is that you in some form or fashion worship yourself. Look at verses 38 through 40. Find those there in your Bible again. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. Friends, here's what I want to do with the few minutes that we have left. Is I just want to draw out some of the implications of worshiping yourself instead of worshiping the biblical Jesus. If you've created a, gym, a, a Jesus after your own image, in your own liking, likeness, of your own making, then you will also fall to the results of that self-worship. And we see it very clearly in the lives of the scribes right here, who also created a Messiah of their own making. And number one there, or A there on your outline, is you will seek pageantry. Probably not a word you'll use again this week, but you will seek pageantry. That's all it was for the scribes. It was one big day after day pageant. Strutting down the street in their nice clothes, the Armani suits of the day, uh, super religious, I'm the teacher, you're the student. It's all just a big play. It's all just a big pageant. It's all just a big show. If you worship a Jesus after your own liking, you will seek pageantry. You will. You'll be just like these scribes who like to walk around in long robes. You see, the scribes of the day, they, they, they wore fine white linen robes. Everyone else wore, wore clothing that was arrayed in, in very beautiful color, but to set themselves apart, to make the statement of holiness. The scribes wore these long, fine white linen robes with fringes that almost touched the ground. The scribes could be characterized by an ostentatious display of dignity or self-importance or arrogance or conceit. You see, long robes were symbols of, of regal and scholarly splendor. It was a look at me. If you worship a Jesus made after your own image, then you will want the world to look at you. If you worship the biblical Jesus, you'll want the world to look at him. Be here. Not only will you seek pageantry, but you'll seek praise. 
you'll see praise. Look there at 38 again. They like greetings in the marketplaces. They like greetings in the marketplaces here. You see, the scribes love to walk through the, the populated areas of town, and they love for people to look them in the eyeball and to refer to them as master or teacher or rabbi or scholar or learned one. They were all wrapped up in their titles. So proud. They wanted people to refer to them in those terms, seeking the praise of men. It's vanity. It sought to increase their ego, but it's vanity. It's vanity. You'll seek praise if you create a Jesus after your own likeness. See, you'll seek prestige. Prestige. Look at verse 39. The scribes, they love to have the best seats in the synagogue. The best seats in the synagogues. These were the seats, so this is, this is the church setting here. These are the seats right up front that faced the congregation so everyone can see them, everyone can take note. They were oftentimes elevated. We still sometimes see this in, in churches of our, our day. It's almost like thrones, you know, uh, up front where the, where the, the pastors or the, 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 the religious leaders sit, separating themselves, distancing themselves from the congregation. These were the seats that were closest to the scrolls, by the way. Again, the, the scribes here so wanted to be seen as, as holy and set apart, spiritual. But it was all a pretense. D, you'll seek position. You'll seek position. The scribes here, they love the places of honor at feasts. The word translated places of honor there has the idea, or really means, the first reclining chair. The first reclining chair, or the first reclining place. You see, in Jesus' day, it was common to recline around couches and around, around the table instead of uh, sitting seated at chairs. And the scribes, they loved the first place. They loved to sit at the speaker's table, first of all. The table with the person who had something to say where everyone else listened. And especially if they weren't the speaker, they loved to sit next to the speaker. They loved the places of honor at feasts. You'll seek power if you create a Jesus after your own likeness. Look at verse 40. These scribes here are said to devour widows' houses. To devour widows' houses. Well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, oftentimes the scribes would befriend the, the weaker individuals in town, notably, notably the widows. And they would find themselves in the home of these widows, making friends with them so that when these widows passed away, when these widows died, they would give their estate to the temple, which just further sought to pad the pockets, to line the pockets of these money-hungry scribes. That's what Jesus says, or means there when he says they devour widows' houses. They, they make it look so nice and sweet, but they have ulterior motives. And so will you, if you buy into a Jesus after your own likeness and image. You'll seek power 
And then lastly here, and this is really just kind of a summary of, of all the others, is you'll seek play acting. Play acting. And yes, I did sit in my office trying to find another last P this week. Play acting is the result. Okay? Play acting is the result. Here, look at verse 40. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. Again, these are the same individuals, just like the Pharisees, which oftentimes scribes were Pharisees, by the way. We can talk about that later, all the interlap of titles and how it all works together. But scribes were oftentimes Pharisees. It was the Pharisees that stood on the street corners, right, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. And they would pray out loud. It was the Pharisees who disfigured themselves so they would look very somber and holy, very connected to the Lord. It was all a big act. It was just a facade. That's why Jesus took the Pharisees to task in Matthew 23, right? He says, you, you look great on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. It's just a facade. And then lastly here, we'll wrap it up. What does Jesus say here? Well, he gives a scathing, scathing rebuke. He says they will receive greater condemnation. Why? Because they pretended to love God greatly, but their real aim was to get people to love them greatly. And friends, I can tell you, if you worship a Jesus in your own image, a Jesus in your own liking, that will also be your aim. You'll just want everybody to love and like you, just like you think your God does. The result is greater condemnation when they stand before God's righteous judgment bar. This is another indication here that there, there is, uh, there, are, there are, there are degrees of punishment. We, we see that throughout the New Testament. Some will be punished uh, more, so all sin will be punished you're either found in Christ, not having a righteousness of your own that comes from the law. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. Uh, he washed it white as snow. Either your sin is paid for in the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, or your sin will be punished personally. And there are varying degrees of that as we read throughout the New Testament. Some will be punished more severely. Some will be punished less severely, but punishment that you cannot bear all the same. And so friends, let me encourage you, fly to Jesus. Run to the biblical Jesus. Think, consider, do I worship a Jesus that I have construed? Do I worship a Jesus that I have made after my own image and my own likeness? That Jesus may be your friend, but that Jesus is powerless to save you. That is what we all need. We need a saving, redeeming Messiah God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would convict us, challenge us. We know that you will hold us accountable, that you don't exist uh, just to put a smile on our face, that you don't live for our happiness exclusively. You call us to holiness. You call us to repent and believe. You call us to follow you, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. And Lord, I pray if there is a single person here, a young person, a child, a single person, a married couple, uh, an older person, if there is a person here this morning who does not know the true biblical Jesus, that they would repent of the Jesus they have self-made, and they would turn to you, our conquering king. 
Lord, thank you that you provide forgiveness full and free uh, in Jesus. Thank you that Jesus was crushed on Calvary's cross that we might have uh, freedom from, forgiveness from our trespasses and sins. We can be a new creation, given new life, given a new heart. And uh, God, I pray that you would grant that to any person here this morning who is humble enough to cast themselves upon your matchless mercy and grace. Lord, we love you. Pray that you would change us and grow us as a result of what we've heard this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.